Don't let a DUI charge ruin your life. Get a professional and confidential evaluation from our experienced team at True Heights Treatment. Our evaluations are accepted by the majority of courts in the state of Illinois and provide a comprehensive assessment of your substance use patterns and potential treatment needs. Get the help you need today and start your path to a brighter future. Contact us now to schedule your evaluation at 708-248-7039 or at thtdui.com. The George Brassy Podcast is made possible with funding provided from Brassy Global Strategies, LLC, a leading political consulting, public policy, government affairs, and research firm. Are you interested in running for elected office? Need advice? Call or email George, 708-769-5015. Brassy Global Strategies 1 at gmail.com. I'm so glad to welcome to the George Brassy Podcast our next guest, Michael Volpe. Michael Volpe is a freelance investigative journalist uh, and the author of several books. And the one we'll be talking about today is uh, Prosecutors Gone Wild, which is the story of former Chicago Heights Mayor Chuck Panici. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Michael, before we get into the book, uh, we usually like to talk a little bit about the origins of our guests. Uh, talk about who Michael Volpe is and how he became an investigative journalist. Sure. I actually, I was born in what was then called the Soviet Union, but I came here when I was pretty young. So a um, little bit before I was seven years old. So I've been a citizen for a long time. And, you know, I speak perfect English, obviously, but I was in finance. However, I was actually in real estate in 2008, which was uh, not good. And just by chance, I was like blogging on something called Red State. And I met a guy named Kevin Koritsky, who was a whistleblower at Emory University, which is a really big deal university down in Atlanta. They call it the Ivy League of the South. And he had blown the whistle on what the, the medical school was doing at Grady Hospital, which is one of the biggest hospitals in the world and in a hospital that treats mostly poor people. And they're basically the medical school, which was running the hospital was taking advantage of the situation because all the patients were poor. And, you know, it's a long, complex story, but I wrote a lot about it. But that was sort of like my entree. And real estate really wasn't making enough money. I was able to get some unemployment for a while. And then, you know, that's sort of how I got into it. What part of um, this former Soviet Union were you born in? Moscow. Uh, yeah, though, actually, most of my family now is here. Uh, my aunt on my mom's side still lives there, though. Interestingly, she has two kids. One of them lives in Germany and the other one lives in Indiana. So uh, but I was born in Moscow. My my dad's family is from like like an area of Siberia. However, Siberia is big. So not like where they have the prisons, like a, a relatively nicer area, but like as rural as it's going to get. Uh, so my dad, my dad's story is sort of interesting because he comes from this like very small town, marries a woman from Moscow, and then winds up living his life in the part of it, at least part of his life in the U.S. Uh, but I was born in Moscow. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it like for you to transition from living in Moscow to America? Uh, well, it 
That's a good. That's a good question. I guess I'm going to do like a therapy session. But it it actually aggravated a lot of my insecurities and my like nervous tension because uh, the kids made fun of me for a variety of reasons, including the fact that I was from Russia, which was like a real problem for me at the time. It's like it's very hard to process when kids are making fun of you because you're from Russia because you are like, what's the response I'm supposed to, you know, like, I'm like, Oh my God, I'm screwed. If, if I'm from Russia and the kids make fun of you because you're from Russia, then I got a real problem for, you know, until I'm through high school. Um, But initially it aggravated it and it was difficult to make friends early on. And I really never came out of my show until I was in college, but yeah, look like on like a little kid level, it was an adjustment. Where did you go to college, Michael? University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. So does the family move from Russia to Illinois? Yeah, no, we did. We started out like in Chicago on the like pretty far north side. And within two years, my parents bought a house in Skokie. Eventually, we moved to Northbrook. And that's all the North Shore. And you're like at different levels of wealthy, basically, at that point. By the time... By the time my parents had gotten a Northbrook. Let's just say my dad had made, had come a long way from the little village in Siberia to one of the wealthiest suburbs of Chicago. And speaking of um, the suburbs of Chicago, um, I, a lot of people listening to this are from Chicago Heights. I'm on the mm-hmm. city of Chicago Heights. What mm-hmm. led to you writing the book Prosecutors Gone Wild? So really early on, I did a story about the Chicago Republican Party, which is almost non-existent, but they did have like a scandalous story. I can't even remember one of the people who I interviewed for the story was a friend of Chuck's. And he said, you know, I got a good friend, Chuck Panici. He's, you know, you seem, I don't know, I guess he's basically giving me a referral. And at the time I, you know, I was like, if somebody's willing to talk to me, that'd be great. But so I didn't know anything about Chuck at the time. And I uh, I didn't know exactly how to embark on it, um, but I met with him. It, he he was a really difficult person to get along with, but a lot of that was my inexperience as well. But he has like it's not a plus personality; it's like a twelve plus personality. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is he has to be in charge, and it's really difficult when he's not in charge because he's always in charge. So you get introduced to uh, the former mayor, Chuck Panici. Mm-hmm. He, he's out of office. He's out of prison by this time when you meet him, or is right. he still in? No, I met him when he was 79. So I think I, whatever, 2011 or 2012, or maybe even earlier than that, I met him when he was 79, whatever that comes to. Uh, but no, he had done his time. Uh, the first meeting, he busts out that check from, I think, Reno Guidotti. That was the key to everything for him. And so this this check that ties um, like associates of the mafia, of of the outfit, uh, of Taco. This guy, Reno Guidotti, was like an associate of Taco. Um, He's on the check. Labu, it's cashed at Labu's cash checking place. And the check is is clearly like a part of a, a bribe for work that's not done effectively. And so, but, but, you know, now I can understand all of that. So he's showing me this check and I'm so lost. I'm like, well, what the hell is going on? And it was so funny. He calls me later that day and he goes, 
how come you didn't ask more questions? And, and he was like, basically like, how come you didn't get it? And I'm like, well, I don't know. Maybe it's because you put me into a movie in, midway through and I couldn't see the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. But we started with the check. The, his case is so complex. There's 13 crimes, 13 bribes, and, and each one has its own set of facts. So in order to understand what happened, you have to understand each crime and then be able to link all the crimes together. Talk a little bit about Mayor Panici's rise uh, to the position of prominence. <clears throat> it's, it's, it, in, in reality, this is like a great American success story. So his parents are working class. They owned, uh, what was it, Three Star. Uh, and it was a pretty successful bar. But he, he told me, he goes, when I, left, what was it? when I left school, they had to burn the school down. He, he wasn't a good student, but he was very resourceful. And he immediately got into several things right away, which was um, brainstorming, uh, goal setting, and then proper attitude. And then, so he would just obsessively learn about brainstorming, goal setting, proper attitude, and he'd apply it every single thing he did. And that's why he was a successful businessman. That's why he started uh, Small Fry Basketball. That's why he was a wildly successful, what I call retail politician, uh, because he would set goals like uh, here's one of the greatest anecdotes from Chuck. He looks at me one day and goes, um, so one of the keys to goals is you have to have a deadline. So like you can't say I'm going to lose 10 pounds. You got to say, well, when are you going to lose it by, you know, like if you just say lose 10 pounds, that will never happen. So you got to have a deadline. So he looks at me and he goes, you know what I learned about deadlines? I was like, no, Chuck, when did you learn about deadlines? He goes, elections. You want to know when it doesn't matter how many votes you're going to get? The day after an election, you want to learn about deadlines, go run for office. So he applied that to everything. That's why he had a successful cleaning business. That's why he had a successful, when he was mayor, he had a successful business. Um, They would like take on medical debt and they would try to like pay it off. But uh, I don't know, his job was to like make the connections with all the hospitals, but he's making like several hundred thousand dollars per year, legitimately, honest taxes. Uh, and that's why one, part of like what they accuse him of is ridiculous. Why would somebody who can make 300,000 yearly take bribes? They're already rich. Uh, and some of these bribes are like $4,000. You're saying he's gonna risk everything to get a couple thousand on some like liquor license. That's what they call it. That's That was one of them. Um, but he rose to success uh, doing like basic things that anybody could do, goal setting, uh, proper attitude, brainstorming. Brainstorms every morning. He really would call me all the time to brainstorm. He just brainstorming all the time, uh, and and the goal setting. He was goal setting all the time as well. A lot of people still to this day um, in the city revere uh, the former. <laughs> uh, he is still in town. Has an excellent reputation. Right. Right. You know what he told me? He said. 15% of the people in Chicago Heights, uh, I could cure cancer, they'd still hate me. 15% of the people, I could be on videotape molesting someone and they still love me. And then the, everyone else in the middle, uh, they can be persuaded. But yeah, no, definitely. Um, look, he, uh, by all measures, besides what happened in the trial, he was a success, not only a successful mayor, but successful for the town. The town flourished in every single way. All right, business was booming, crime was down. He showed me like like they did surveys of of 
when he left office of all the things that the mayor's office does, from crime to education to this, that, and there's like 80% approved in every single category. So um, he was wildly successful, but you know, look, every politician, number one, has haters. Number two, obviously some people think he took bribes, but uh, he, if, it, if it wasn't for that trial, they might've renamed the town for him. Uh, that's how influential he is down there. Tell me a little bit about um, the downfall. Where did the cracks in the armor start to show um, relationship to the federal with Mayor Panici? Right. So what happened was the feds came in to initially investigate Tackle, and they got Tackle, uh, Albert Tackle. And there was evidence of wrongdoing on Labou's part, Nick Labou. So Nick Labou is one of the, the city councilmen. And um, the Gliatoni, John Gliatoni was like, like a pretty good friend of Chuck's. And Louise Marshall, he liked, he told me he, he took Labou because uh, it was what, like he's Sicilian. He thought he could get like a good segment of, of the Chicago Heights population. I remember I looked at him and he just looks back at me and he goes, I never said I was not a political animal. Um, but that's, so he didn't really know Labou and Labou got into a couple of nickel and dime deals and some that are a little bit bigger where he was, he was like coordinating bribes. So the feds were able to indict Labou using RICO, uh, Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act. And what that does is sentence enhancement. So while he'd normally do, say, a year or two years for some of the stuff that he was doing, they were going to put him away for 30 years. So they indict him, and three days later, they got a deal between Labou and the feds. And suddenly, all of the crimes that Labou was accused of, Labou is saying, well, yeah, no, I participated, but actually Chuck Panici was the one directing. And of course, that makes sense. He's the mayor. And they went with that. And after that, they got Ralph Galdario to, to claim that Chuck took, or I don't remember if he took a bribe from Ralph that Ralph claimed it, or the other way around. And the, the mayor of South Chicago Heights, his name is, uh, slips my mind right now, he claimed there was like one deal uh, where they were sort of involved with. Uh, but they, they didn't, besides people saying that Chuck was involved in a bribe, there was no evidence Chuck was involved in a bribe. And, and one of the, like, the bribes would be like gold, Everybody else's gold popped up. No one can seem to find what, what happened to Chuck's gold. They were like bonds. The bonds just disappeared. You know, he claims that he gave Chuck bonds, but he doesn't remember what they were or, or what happened to them or what happened to anything. So the evidence is Nick Labou says it happened and he was involved, so it must be true. Uh, or Ralph Caldario says it happens. And Ralph, uh, one important thing is Chuck and Ralph knew each other since they were like nine years old. Uh, Ralph sold him out because he couldn't do however many years they were sticking him with, uh, even though they were lifetime friends. Not only lifetime friends, basically without Chuck Panici, who knows what would happen to Ralph Caldario. He got that guy jobs throughout his life. Uh, when Chuck owned the House of Charles, Ralph worked for him. When Chuck was mayor, Ralph had a job in the administration. Uh, so, And he repays him by saying that Chuck took bribes when he knew he didn't because he couldn't do the extra time himself. What ends up happening to um, Labou, to, to Gliatoni, to um, Marshall? So Labou moves over to like, uh, 
I don't even remember, Albuquerque, New Mexico. He starts doing like marketing for some minor league team. And eventually a story is written about what happened to him, but I don't know how, how significant a factor that was. Um, but, and I think he eventually died. Uh, John and Louise went back to, to Chicago Heights and they continued their lives. Everybody, it's sort of like your life after prison is going to be significantly worse than your life before prison. So, you know, everybody continued. I, I'm not sure exactly what happened to Gliatoni, but he, he, Chuck told me Gliatoni was making even more money than Chuck was. Uh, that John was whatever, because Mayor and, uh, and the city council is part-time. You actually have a real job. But Gliatoni was making like 400000 a year. So I don't know how significant the setback was, but presumably he already had a lot of money saved up anyway. Um, but I think everybody just moved back. And, uh, and I think everyone's passed away now. What do you feel um, – well, let me – before we get into the last couple of questions – did you read, uh, did Chuck Panici help you with your book? Did you ever read his book that he eventually wrote? I didn't. I read part of, of his book. We, he and I, uh, like I published, I, he not only helped me, but the, the whole purpose was that I was writing like his story, that he couldn't write it, so he needed someone to write it. But we got into an argument at the end, so I, I published it uh, without his permission, if you will, except for the fact that right up until the end, I had his permission. He, he wanted to turn it into three books. He wanted to do something ridiculous. And it, it gets into like all kinds of psychodrama. But um, I read a little bit of, of his book afterwards. And I think actually he published, a, there's a second book that was published as well. Um, I, don't, I don't remember uh, how much of each I read, uh, but I know th there's several uh, books about it out there. The one thing I'll say is regardless of our relationship, he was absolutely innocent. He was totally set up. He's one of the greatest mayors just in the history of America and certainly in the history of Chicago Heights. He loved that town. Uh, everything he did was in support of that town. Uh, it's, uh, there, there was a lot of corruption in his administration. You can find that in almost every town the size of Chicago Heights. It's, there's a what's the guy's name? There's a, he was, he was an Italian guy too. And he was a mayor of, I think um, somewhere in like Rhode Island. And uh, he, he said, like, if you spit, you're going to find somebody trying to take advantage of the system that they're working for a city government. It's like, it's really hard to stop all forms of corruption, but there was corruption. Uh, but that's like, like a legacy. You know, if you want to hold it against him, hold it against him legacy wise. But, uh, he should not have done any time because he didn't participate in any bribes. What do you feel like current residents can learn from the Chuck Panici story? The feds, the fed, if the federal government wants you, they will get you. And they have a lot of powerful laws that they can manipulate. And RICO is just one of them. But they are this giant monolith that if you get in its way, it doesn't matter how powerful you are. You are going to be taken down. I know the one thing in his book, um, he talks about his legal counsel being less than standard. Um, right. But that's kind of his fault, though. He he I told him this, but he chose that guy. He was given a referral. This guy, the guy he chose, did some good stuff on some murder cases, some some rapes. And so you're, you're like, well, if the guy got somebody off on murder, he can certainly do my case. Well, 
Murder is all states. Uh, so is rape. That guy never done a federal case before. Completely different. The evidence here is like exponentially more complex than the average murder case. Murder may be a more serious crime, but trying to unravel a, a bribery case is a lot more complicated. Uh, but Chuck picked them. But no, his lawyer was not that good. Um, but the feds also set him up. Uh, there was a variety of factors. I also have a question about how the jury responded. There's one of the bribes, Labou said, I don't recall to 17 straight questions about details of the bribe. Now, if the main witness says, I don't recall to 17 straight questions that refer to elements of the crime, how do you find the defendant guilty of said crime when there's no other evidence? How does that happen? So I have questions about the way the jury behaved. Uh, yes, his defense counsel was almost criminally at times uh, incompetent, but you know, I, I, the guy was probably in over his head, and I don't think Chuck understood that there's a huge difference between having a guy do a state case and having a guy do a federal case. Um, and you know, but you only get one chance with that. And uh, but but the feds went after him. They had to know that Lobu was full of crap. They had to know it. This guy he couldn't remember anything about anything when it really comes down to details. You know, he claimed that there was all these bribes that Chuck participated in, and not once, not once did he give an exact date of anything that happened, which I found quite convenient because Chuck was such a busy guy that if you ever did, I bet Chuck could go back and say that's interesting because I was in Houston that day. Uh, but that never happened, so Chuck couldn't go back. You know, he couldn't challenge that. He, he never once gave anything close to a specific, oh, it happened in, like, 93, or it happened in, like, 88. Like, it's never specific enough to be challenged, and no one seemed to find that suspicious. And the same thing with, with all of them. Nobody ever gave a date, nothing specific enough that you could challenge it. And they had to know that they were setting him up. But look... The, Chris Gere, the, the prosecutor, I don't know if it's still on there, but when I called him, Chuck's prosecution is on his bio at, at the big law firm he works at in Chicago, where he probably makes seven figures yearly. Michael, um, what are two books you would recommend to the audience that have been influential to you as a person? Okay, so my favorite author is Oscar Wilde, and um the one that I think is most effective is The Profundus, which is a long letter that was eventually turned into a book that he wrote from jail to his gay lover. Um, and it's just my, he, he gets into a, a variety of different things that, uh, that's mind-blowing in terms of philosophy uh, in The Profundus. And also he's, he, he's so clearly hurt at that point in his life. The, the writing becomes more powerful than, than during the phase of his life when everything's going great. Um, but as far as what's helped my career, it's almost cliche, but all the president's men, if, if you are trying to be a journalist, they don't just describe how they figured out, that's Woodward and Bernstein, how they figured out Watergate, but they basically explain like the mechanics of the journalism part of it. And it's in many ways, very much a how-to guide on how to approach an investigation of that sort. Michael, where can the audience find you on the internet? Well, I, I'm a freelance journalist, so it's a little difficult, but I have a blog that, that like catalogs all of my stuff, which is The Provocateur at blogspot.com, or I'm on Facebook, tw at Twitter, on Twitter, at Mike Volpe, and then Prosecutors Gone Wild is one of four books. That's Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, or if you hate all of those, whatever one you really like.
Michael, thanks for coming on my podcast. Thank you for having me. Help George stay on the Chicago Heights City Council. Go and donate today at tinyurl.com slash aldermangeorge2023. Begin to transform your life and work towards inner peace with expert psychotherapy. At True Heights Treatment, our experienced therapists provide personalized, compassionate care to help you overcome life's challenges and reach your goals. Whether you're struggling with depression, anxiety, relationship issues, or other mental health concerns, our team is here to support you. With a warm and welcoming in-person and virtual office atmosphere and a commitment to person-centered and evidence-based treatments, we are dedicated to helping you address your life's challenges. Contact us now to schedule your first session at 708-248-7039 or online at trueheightstx.com. Book your appointment today and start your journey towards a happier, healthier life. Need more George? Like his pages on Facebook. Friends of George Brassy PAC? Fifth Ward Business Alliance, Chicago Heights Bicycle and Pedestrian Resource Center, and the George Brassy Podcast.